welcome to Doing the Work, the frontline stories of social change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Rachel Frome, who is the program coordinator of Social Workers Against Solitary Confinement, a national task force dedicated to ending solitary confinement. Rachel discusses the negative impacts of solitary confinement, especially how it can cause and exacerbate mental health issues. She describes alternatives to solitary confinement, as well as the challenges of organizing for an end to solitary, and how lawmakers and those running prisons use wording such as administrative segregation as a way to deny that prisoners are held in solitary. We explore the connection between the work to abolish solitary confinement with the work to end mass incarceration, as well as the dialogue Social Workers Against Solitary Confinement has with social workers who work in these settings. Rachel shares the story of how she got into this work and urges all social workers to work to abolish solitary confinement and mass incarceration. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, Rachel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk about the work you're doing with social workers against solitary confinement. Just want to welcome you and to get things started. If you could kind of give an overview about the work that you do, that would be great. Thanks so much for having me. Right now, I'm the program coordinator for Social Workers Against Solitary. And I was brought on initially to do some grant writing, volunteer coordination, and strategic planning. Um, But my position has evolved because of some opportunities that have come up. So right now, I'm creating an educator resource of the month for the CSWE's Center for Diversity and Social and Economic Justice. Uh, which I saw your um, podcast was a feature on one month. And I'm also organizing a conference in collaboration with Psychologists for Social Responsibility. And the conference is called Ending Mass Incarceration, Healing Justice, which is going to be in Berkeley in November. That sounds great. There's kind of a lot you just talked about right there. So the educator resource, yes, that was great that the podcast was able to do that. And then a conference related to mass incarceration, you know, and one thing that I was, I had written down in preparation for our conversation was just that link between solitary confinement and mass incarceration. So that's really good to hear that you'll be part of a conference like that. Yeah, it's definitely essential to the work that we're doing, uh, having that framework of abolition and ending mass incarceration. So let's get into the work that the organization does. What specifically is the work that, you know, the organization is doing? Sure. So we're organizing to get social work institutions and social workers to assume ethical responsibility for the abolition of solitary confinement and mass incarceration. So right now, organizations like the NASW don't really give guidelines. or assume responsibility for how social workers operate within prisons and jails. And there's a culture of silence and complacency. So the work that we're doing is trying to get those institutions to assume ethical responsibility and educate new social workers on why solitary confinement is a human rights violation. So before we get into how that work is going, 
I think this is going to be a new topic for a lot of the podcast listeners. So I think it's important to kind of just give some information about solitary confinement in and of itself, and then we can get into more of the work you're doing. So let's use this as a platform to educate people about solitary confinement and why it needs to be abolished. Absolutely. Thank you. So currently, there are about 80,000 to 100,000 people in jails, detention centers, prisons, and juvenile facilities across the country who for 23 hours a day are held in a cell the size of a parking space. So this means that they have pretty much no meaningful human contact. Their food is passed through trays in a flap in their cell door. And it's like, it's something that has been going on for decades. It started in about in 1970. And different organizers have been working for years to abolish solitary. And it's become known in different names. So some people call it protective custody, others call it administrative segregation or isolation. And what are some of the negative effects for a human being to be in solitary confinement? Yeah, so the APA uh, has found that people with mental illness conditions uh, will deteriorate or not improve while in solitary. There are higher rates of death by suicide, self-mutilation, recidivism, which is uh, people who leave prison, wind up back in the criminal legal system. Solitary confinement also has effects that can be categorized as post-traumatic stress disorder. A lot of people who've been in solitary for long periods of time have hypersensitivity to stimuli, hallucinations, panic attacks, and cognitive defects. So solitary is really an unnecessary and harmful practice. And some prisons have developed other ways to manage reasons why someone would go into solitary that have had more positive effects. Can you elaborate on that? In 2011, Colorado began a phase of changing from bringing people out of solitary cells, replacing them with step-down units, which increased time out of the cell for therapy and socialization. And over a period of six years, the solitary population decreased from 1,500 to less than five people. Violence also decreased in the prison. Who tends to end up being put in solitary confinement? And what are you know some of the concerns with who's actually going in there? It's disproportionately people of color, also uh, vulnerable populations, such as the LGBTQ population tend to be in prison. I used to write to someone who was trans, and she was indefinitely in solitary because she was housed in a male prison. Additionally, children who are in adult prisons or even in juvenile facilities are often in prison. So recently, the infamous case of the Central Park Five in the movie, When They See Us, they depict Corey Wise, who requested solitary because he was unsafe in the general population. Right. So in a situation like that, well, first of all, he shouldn't have been in prison, period. So I think that's part of the conversation that really needs to happen and why I'm glad that the organization is going to be part of a conference focused on mass incarceration. You know, in his case, right, he was coerced into false testimony. He was coerced into uh, false admission. Mm -hmm. And so an alternative to solitary confinement 
could have been putting him, you know, with other young people. But the real issue was that he should have never been there in the first place. Exactly. So I think in, and maybe you can speak to this, but in coming up with alternatives, because there's obviously got to be work done to create alternatives to solitary confinement. And at the same time, work being done to challenge mass incarceration and how the criminalization, you know, not having prison as the primary means of uh, really social control. Right, right. So that's been a real question with our work with Social Workers Against Solitary Confinement is do we focus on reforming the system, which we know is racist and archaic, or do we focus on revolution and abolition? And um, I think it's a question that most social workers have to face in some way. And it's been it's been really formative for me to be starting my career, you know, in such a ethical dilemma. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's definitely a lot out there about our social workers really, adv- you know, working for social change or are we complicit in an oppressive system? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know that some of the literature on your website talks about how mental health providers and social workers are often complicit in solitary confinement. Yeah. One of our founders, Mary Buser, was the former acting chief of the mental health unit that housed people at Rikers Island in the 90s. And she's a social worker. And she uh, found that it felt like she was a monitor of human suffering. And she wound up leaving that job and published a book called Lockdown on Rikers that speaks a lot to the role of a social worker working in a prison. That sounds like a good resource for folks to learn more about this topic. Definitely. So a little bit more about the alternative to solitary confinement that Social Workers Against Solitary have researched is at Colorado State Penitentiary. The director, Rick Ramish, created this step-down program where people who have the most comprehensive or highest level of management control is what they call it, have four hours outside of their cell with recreation. And then they have other levels where um, there's more socialization and everyone has socialization therapy. And they learned that of the 1,500 people released after prison, 250 recidivated. So that's a really low statistic in comparison to the folks who go from solitary to the outside world. So that is that seen as a mo- kind of like a model program? Yes, it's it's sort of like a groundbreaking program that no other state is doing right now. Getting back to the work of the organization, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges in terms of real social change for the work that you all are doing? I think that impacting the criminal legal system is just such a archaic system to be working on. It was founded upon racism and classism, and it's really it's really just difficult to impact. Things move really slowly, and there are decades, as I mentioned earlier, uh, decades of 
work that folks have been doing to end solitary confinement. And we know that it's harmful. We know it doesn't work and that there are alternatives. But oftentimes we see solitary confinement regulation changes and then they just call it by a new name. So during my first year of field work, I remember testifying in a committee for the passage of a bill limiting solitary in New Jersey. And the bill passed committee, but the governor, Chris Christie, at the time claimed that no one in New Jersey was in solitary because of a loophole. He was utilizing language of administrative segregation instead of solitary confinement. So because of the wording, people remained in solitary confinement, basically. Yeah, exactly. And we see this in several different states. It's sort of like a way of deceiving people. And since it's such an isolated system, it's really hard for us to even know how many people are in solitary right now. So, you know, you talked about field work and now the work you're doing is in that organization. How did you get drawn to this kind of social work? So actually, my freshman year of undergrad, I was introduced to the corruption and brutality of the criminal legal system. I was taking a writing course that was, the theme was freeing imprisoned minds. And my professor brought in a black man named David Bryant, who was wrongfully convicted in 1976 when he was 18 years old. And he shared his story and his trauma with us in detail. He had been in prison for 40 years, and I think he was out for a couple months. And his story really has stayed with me. Uh, And I began tutoring at a local correctional facility. And then I started taking courses to get my bachelor's in social work. Okay. So you're taking these courses to get your bachelor's and then eventually you got your master's. And at some point, how did you decide to stay committed or that this was the kind of social work you wanted to go into? Because there's so many different options and clearly change on this level is very difficult. Yeah. Well, I focused all of my coursework that I could on mass incarceration. It was just something that once I learned about it, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I wound up getting my dream field placement during my bachelor in social work with the American Friends Service Committee Prison Watch Program. And my mentors were Bonnie Kernest, who has been a civil and human rights advocate for decades, and Ojiri Lutalo, who is a former political prisoner and activist who spent 40 years inside. And through that internship, I read a lot of letters detailing the torture that folks were experiencing inside. And I just became outraged and it lit a fire inside of me that I haven't really been able to put out. That's awesome. I hope it doesn't go out uh, because we need folks like you doing this kind of work. Thank you. I um, developed a desire from working at Prison Watch to learn how to change systems. And I have always felt an obligation to continue working for abolition. So I got my MSW to learn more about how to build capacity of communities and evaluate programs so that we can do better work. So in terms of social work and solitary confinement, you talked a little bit about the intersection there in terms of social workers who might be overseeing programs that are using solitary confinement. We also know there's a lot of social workers who do work in correctional facilities where there probably is solitary confinement or whatever term it's being called there. 
what are the conversations that your organization or that you um, individually have with those social workers who are in those settings? We usually like to hear about their experiences and kind of create a space just to listen and see how we can support them best. We've had a couple different folks who were working in the criminal legal system in some way who've joined our meetings and also a lot of folks who used to work in criminal legal legal settings and are now not working there because they found it so hard. I think that to generalize, a lot of folks who are working in these settings now are having a really hard time and come to us for support because they're so upset and angry about their workplace. It's got to be a real challenge because they probably went into that line of work really wanting to help people, right? I mean, most people who become social workers do it because they really want to help people. I mean, everyone's got their own personal story. um, And a lot of social workers have been through a lot, actually, that have brought them to the profession. And people need jobs, right? So Mm -hmm. they take a position in some of these settings, which actually also tend to pay better than some like community-based work nonprofit work but then there's this aspect of being being involved with this right which kind of gets back into that like how do you change the system right question right like do you can do you change it from within or does that eventually have you just become more part of that system or are you or do you you know work from without right i think it's a question that doesn't have an answer honestly i think that the work that everyone's doing is important and they're right where they need to be. So let's talk a little bit about the conference that you're working on and the goal of this of this conference and how it links to solitary confinement. Sure. So the conference is rooted in the principles of liberation psychology, decolonial praxis, and anti-racist organizing. And the intent, intent is to build community and a movement among mental health professionals and psychologists to end mass incarceration. And part of that in a more immediate way of ending mass incarceration is ending solitary confinement, which is kind of like, I see it as the crux of mass incarceration. It's it's a totally punitive practice that disproportionately impacts vulnerable and discriminated against groups. Right. So like there's nothing beneficial that comes from solitary confinement. Right. It's just a way that prisons control people. That's the only benefit. You know, you you mentioned abolition. So when you say that, I'm assuming you're talking about prison abolition as a whole. Yes. So so does the organization have, you know, a position or a kind of a vision of what the world would look like without prisons? That's a wonderful question. I'm not sure if we've gotten there yet. The organization is five years old and volunteer run. And I think that we've been very busy with every new policy coming out or human rights abuse that we've heard of. I think social workers are oftentimes always putting out fires and we need to do a little more dreaming. Yeah, there's a lot of daily crises going on that require attention. Yeah. I mean that's probably something that'll that people that are at that conference will have and w- so where is this where is the conference going to be? It's in Berkeley, California at the Wright Institute and it'll be on November 3rd and 4th. 
Okay, so we can put some information about that in the show notes Great. for this episode so people can get information there. And of course, there's going to be information about how to contact you and, and the organization. So, you know, on a personal level, because you say, you know, you you had this really um, eye-opening experience with the person who came to your class and now you it lit a fire and you're in this work and but change is hard right so how do you kind of you know deal with those feelings on a on a day-to-day basis i lean on mentors when i you know need support and sort of hope and also one of the benefits of being in macro social work is nothing is going to happen overnight so i've learned to turn off email notifications on my phone, which has helped me a lot to kind of manage when I'm at work and when I'm not. I also look at look to art as a form of hope and expression. I think the learning that I like how you took learning that nothing's going to happen overnight and then connected that to turning off the notifications. Because I think uh, learning that nothing's going to happen overnight can also just be a good practice for accepting the pace of this work. But I really like how you put it into something where it's like, no, I'm going to just turn off my email notifications. So I'm not, you know, so I have a little time to myself. Yeah, I think that everyone should do it. It's really helped my mental well-being. And where did you also where did how did you kind of learn that, you know, change is slow? Was that something that you've been taught by from mentors? Definitely. I think I entered my internship at the American Friends Service Committee so idealistic and ready to kind of get my elbows deep into social change work. And, you know, I just saw stacks and stacks of letters to respond to and felt pretty useless at the time about what I was writing and the answers that I was providing to the people who were desperately seeking help. And I I think that's sort of where I learned that this work is really slow and the little things matter. And also, we have to think about the big picture and recharge when we need to. Absolutely. I think, you know, I know I had to learn that progress means something different for everybody, especially I did work uh, with an outpatient mental health and what might seem like progress to me could be very different for that of, you know, the person I was working with. So that was something I know I needed to learn. And I see that a lot with new, with you know, new uh, social workers where people are like fired up and they want change to happen, whether they're working individually with someone on like a micro level, you know, on a clinical level, or they're working on a macro level like you are with such challenging uh, issues. And I think learning that pace without having the fire put out is so important, right? Because otherwise burnout can really happen. I think that's a really good point that you have to sort of know what progress means to you and and sort of create a way for that to happen, even if it's really slow. Is there any specific legislation that you all are working on right now? Any specific bills? A lot of our members live in New York and New York is going through a process with the HALT bill, and I that was recently vetoed, and, and that would limit the amount of days that one could be in solitary confinement and also who w- would be in solitary confinement. We did have a victory, actually, 
in New Jersey recently, and Phil Murphy passed that bill, actually, that I mentioned earlier that Christie vetoed. So supposedly, solitary will be limited to 20 days in New Jersey. Someone has to go back to general population after 20 days. And what was it prior? Uh, indefinite. So the person who I mentioned earlier, Ojri Lutalo, was held in solitary for 23 years in New Jersey. Wow. I know you said it early on, but the size of these cells, about how big are they? They're about the size of a parking space, which is about 6 by 10 feet. Okay, so 6 by 10 feet, there's... What are they? What do these cells look like? There's a bed and a toilet, and usually the sink is above the toilet, and then a lot of walls and a door with a slot in it. So otherwise, there's no really way to see out. And they're in there for the maj- how many hours out of the day? Twenty three hours out of the day. Everyone is supposed to get at least one hour of recreation time in the yard per day. But actually, a lot of people don't take that hour because they're experiencing such extreme mental illness. And oftentimes, that time in the yard is spent alone as well. Right. So people can develop mental health issues from being in solitary confinement. There's also a high number of people with mental health issues that end up being put in solitary confinement, which can exacerbate those issues, right? Exactly. So how can, you know, how can people who are listening learn more and get involved with this? Yeah, so if they have the time, they could join Social Workers Against Solitary Confinement as a member, which basically means they join us for an hour meeting once a month. They can also support efforts to hire people who are formerly incarcerated in their workplaces. They can also become pen pals with someone who's in solitary. The organization Solitary Watch has a great program that can get you connected with someone. It's called Lifeline. And you can give your money or time to local prisoner rights and reentry organizations. And our website has a long resource list if you're interested in reading more about it. That's great. I think it's a topic, you know, it's funny. As I think back to my education, my bachelor's and my master's, I cannot think of solitary confinement coming up in one class. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I I remember it coming up once because I brought it up, but I, I've never had a professor bring it up. It's really horrible. So that's part of the work that we're doing. Um, we're creating curriculum and resources that the CSWE is going to publish on their diversity center website, which is really exciting because it's it's really needed. Yeah, it's a great resource. And so for people listening who aren't sure what that is, it's a it's a place that educators can go and actually get lessons around the topic. Everything's prepared by whoever's doing that educator resource of the month. So I, I'm I'm thrilled that you're gonna be on there and I hope people are going to use it because yeah, I don't I can't remember it coming up. You can't remember it coming up. You know, I, it's something that I think anyone listening to this who is a social work educator or an educator, I hope you will include it in, in your teaching uh, because it is so important. And it directly, you know, I know we're getting towards the end here, but I just wanted to add in that this issue of solitary confinement, I think really 
hit some of the key aspects of our code of ethics as social workers, right? Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. Our code of ethics actually currently doesn't protect people who are imprisoned, which is, I think, a really grave way of operating as professionals. Right. So what I was thinking of is that we have, you know, we're called upon to challenge social injustice, right? And to work for social justice. And we also are, we also, you know, believe in the dignity and worth of every individual. And those two things, you know, are not compatible with someone being in solitary confinement. Absolutely. Which is why I think that all social workers should have an ethical imperative to end solitary as well as mass incarceration as a whole. And how are those, how is that work going? You were saying you, you would like NASW, your organization would like NASW to issue a statement on this? Yes. And the NASW actually has issued a statement on solitary confinement. However, it, it put the responsibility on the practitioner and not at all on the institution, which puts you in a really hard place, right? With someone who has dual loyalty and is working for both to the Department of Corrections and they have this code of ethics, how are they supposed to speak up and, and protect the client with a setting that can be really dangerous for practitioners? Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point there. And that's something that's hard to reconcile, I think, for you know, people in those situations. I know for me, it w- that would be really hard. Yeah, me too. So, you know, before we wrap things up, I'm just wondering if there's anything else you want to share that you, you know, can use as a platform here and, and get your message out to people. Thanks. Something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is transformative justice. And I read, uh, I recommend reading Emergent Strategies, Adrian Marie Brown's book. And something that I've been thinking about with transformative justice is to think about it on an interpersonal level. So thinking about how to operate with transformative justice with our personal relationships, with our family and coworkers. And I think that's really a first step to abolition is, is working on an interpersonal level in your own lives. So I would, I would challenge listeners to do the same. Thanks. I appreciate you providing that resource as well for people. And, you know, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on here and thanks for doing the work in the community. Thanks so much for having me and for doing the podcast. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place.